0: You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. Axe Church Northwest is located in Vancouver, Washington. We meet each Sunday with two services, one at 9 a.m. and one at 11 a.m. If this is your first time listening, welcome. We hope you enjoy. Want to know more about us? You can check us out online at www.axechemist.org. Okay, here's the sermon. We hope God blesses you through it. Think about this question for a few seconds. What are you willing to die for? What are you willing to die for? I looked into the thoughts of those willing to post online, which are always the most thoughtful and wise among us. Um, (laughs) But anyway, those who were were willing to post online, I looked on Quora and somebody asked this question, saw uh, a couple different questions similar to this and just saw what people wrote. And the themes were similar throughout the many answers that I got. There were things like this. Uh, they said they wouldn't die for anything or anyone ever. That was one of the kind of themes. Certain people were just like, no, I wouldn't die for anyone. I wouldn't die for anything. Not my kids, not my wife, not my country, not my whatever. That's just where they stood on it. And then there were basically people who said, I would die for, and they might have named a person, my best friend, my dad, my mom, something like that, like one or two people, maybe just a close friend or family member, there were some who said kind of they would die for their friends and family in general, that they would lay down their life for those folks. Um, and there's some who said kind of in general, I would die for innocent children. Like something's happening to a child, I would risk my life to save the child. Several folks mentioned that they would die for freedom or for their country, something like that. And a few mentioned that they would be willing to die for Christ. They would be willing to die for their faith. What's, what's similar? about these answers, it seems that some people are willing to die for kind of one or more people that they love, or they at least think they will be willing to die for those folks. Um, And then there's people who are kind of willing to die uh, or risk death to protect the people kind of in their country or in their town. I think most people who are in the military, who are soldiers, who are willing to fight, are willing to die um, for their country. And I think for most people that means the people, right? The people who they know, the people who they want to protect, their family, their homeland, that type of thing, um, and for freedom, for the ability to live free. That seemed to, to kind of be a theme. People seem to generally be willing to die for the things that they're willing to live for, the things that make their life, you know, special and, and joyful. You know, the people around them, the freedom, the things like that are, are the things that people seem to be willing to die for. The truth is that Scripture tells us that a person is rarely, rarely willing to die for another person, even for a good person. That most people, that it's very rare that somebody would be willing to die even for a good person. Although in some cases, someone might be willing to die for a good person. But Jesus died for bad people. He didn't die for good people. Jesus died for sinners and rebels and people who rejected him and rejected the authority of God in their lives. That's who he laid down his life for. In fact, he died for the people that killed him, which is a very different thing than I think the way most of us think. If you look at Romans chapter 5, we'll look at verses 6 through 8. Let me get there here. It says, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ modeled something. Christ modeled something for his followers, that there were things worth dying for. He modeled specifically that you and me were worth dying for. Jesus loves you more than you have ever loved anyone or anything. Jesus' love for you is more passionate and strong, and overwhelming than any love that you have ever felt in the, in the most loving moment you've ever had, right? The baby being born, or, or you're giving your daughter away in marriage, or whatever those moments where you cry, and they make the Hallmark movie, and the whole thing, those moments where you're overwhelmed with love don't even register on the scale in comparison to the love that Jesus has for you. Jesus died to save us from our own sin and our wickedness and our rebellion so that we could become sons and daughters of God, so that we could experience the joy of eternal life with our Heavenly Father. It was not for death that Jesus died but for life. It wasn't for death, but for life, for eternal life, for you and for me and for all those who will call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Salvation from death and sin in this broken world. That's who he died for. If we read, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says this. Therefore we also... endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. He was willing to die. He was willing to go through it, not because it was fun. It was the furthest thing from fun that's ever been. The reason that he went through it is because on the other side of that was joy. Joy in what? Joy in you. In you. He had his joy in believing and understanding, knowing the plan that by going through this death and then defeating death and sin and hell in resurrection, that you could be saved. That you could experience joy, that you could be fully yourself, that you could love God and that God could love you and that you could live an eternal life. That's what it was about. That was the joy that was set before him. And we are called to be his disciples. That means we are called to imitate him, to be like him. That's our call. That means that as he endured the cross, we are to, as this verse says, run with endurance the race set before us. That means we must be willing to die and be willing to live for that gospel that saves us, for Jesus Christ. We must see people as eternal. When you walk around, you've never met a temporal person. You have never met a person that was just going to be here for a little while. Everyone that is in your life, everyone that you know, everyone that you have ever met is eternal. And they will either be being transformed in Christ unto glory in the Lord. Or they will be being conformed to the world and to death for eternity. Those are the choices. That's the race that's in front of us is to go through a world with eternal people and have the mindset of being willing to follow our leader, the Lord, and everything is worth it. Death Life, everything is worth it for the joy that is set before us that God might use us to bring some people into his kingdom. That is what life is about. People are made in the image and likeness of God and they are loved passionately by him. We have to move in the power of the Holy Spirit to live for Jesus and to pour ourselves out for others. Now, we have been in a series called Right Side Up for a few months now. Lord willing, we're going to finish that study today. We have been studying Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount. For those of you that have been around, if you're new, by the way, welcome. It's good to see you. You're here at the very end of it. So um, you get to kind of catch up the summary. We have been learning what it looks like to be a disciple, to be a Christ follower, to be imitators of Christ. He's been showing us through the Sermon on the Mount that the world is upside down, that culture is upside down, that being conformed to the world is upside down. It's broken. It's a lie. And he's showing us what it looks like to live right side up. That is what he's doing. He's showing us what it looks like to be his follower, to be in eternity today. Yes, there is a time when all will be made new, But we are already seated in the heavenly places with him. We are already sanctified and justified. We can live that life, although there may be persecution, there may be pain, there may be difficulty. We can live that life of eternity now. And he's showing us how to do it. He's showing us how to live that life, that kingdom life now. We've learned to be poor in spirit. To mourn over our own sin to be in a state of recognizing who we are without God and who we are with him, what he's done for us, to live in that state and be blessed by that. We have learned to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to want it, to desire it. So many things that we desire, so many things that we get caught desiring, most of them or a lot of them are either neutral, meaningless, or even worse. But the thing that should be the desire of our hearts, the thing that we hunger and thirst for, that we want more of, is to be righteousness. It's to be more like him, like Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's our desire. We've learned that sin is in the heart. In the places where only God sees And the deep, dark places that your neighbor doesn't see and your husband doesn't see or your wife doesn't see or your kids don't see is where sin is. That's where it's born. That's where it's going. But God sees. We've learned that real relationship with the Father is about building real relationship. That means it's about the precious things that we do for him that nobody else knows about. Just like he knows your heart and nobody else knows about it, we're also supposed to do things for him that he knows about and nobody else knows about. When we give, our left hand isn't supposed to know what our right hand is doing. That means for sure our neighbor doesn't know what our right hand is doing, right? We don't make a big show of it. When we pray, we're to go in our room and close our door and pray in secret to the Father who sees in secret and will reward you openly. When we fast, we're not to go to everybody, oh I'm so hungry. I don't know if you know, but I've been fasting. Not saying that you know I'm more spiritual than you, but I am, obviously. Look how hungry I am. Wash your face. Look like you're okay. Because the fasting isn't about that other person going, oh my gosh, how spiritual that person is. They're fasting. It's about what you're doing between you and the Lord. It's about having a real relationship. If everything that you do is about other people seeing, if the only time you pray is when other people are listening, that's not a relationship with God. That's about you. He's saying we got to be that person who understands that there—that right now you have a secret relationship. And what I mean by that is it's a personal relationship with God that you're building. As you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're saying, God, make me more like you. You and him in prayer. You and him in your giving. You and him in your fasting. You and him in those silent times. You and him. That's the relationship we're to be building. And Jesus shows us that here. He's showing us how to invest In the kingdom, we lay up treasures where? In heaven. Why? Because it's the only safe place to lay up treasures. All over this earth, all throughout history, there are those who have been all about treasures and who have laid up treasure for themselves on earth. And here's the one consistent thing about every one of them. They're all dead. And if the only treasure they had was on earth, it went to their snot-nosed kid or whoever, right? Very few of them were buried with it. We're to lay up treasure in heaven because that's the only place where moth does not destroy and rust does not destroy, right? That's where we're supposed to lay up our treasures, And so daily, every day, we think less about our bank account and more about that account in heaven, more about those eternal rewards, more about building that relationship with God. You don't want to be just acquaintances with Jesus when you get there. Like, oh, yeah, we've met before. Yeah, in church, sometimes I would think about you when I wasn't playing Angry Birds. You want it to be running to the arms of God. You want that relationship to be so close that when you get to see face-to-face, it's amazing. That's what he's teaching us to build up. To walk the narrow road, not go on the wide path, to keep asking and seeking and knocking, not to condemn. To love our enemies, not just our friends, because the lost... They love their friends too. Even they love the people that love them back. But we're to love our enemies. We're not to worry. Not even about what we'll eat or what we'll drink or what we'll wear. We're to trust God that passionately and that fully. All of these things we have studied. And they're all about living our life as true followers of Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's what they're about. They're about living right side up because for the world, this is not how they live. This is not the way of the culture. This is not the secular, worldly way. We're to constantly seek righteousness to be perfect just as our heavenly father is perfect. That's what we want. That's what we want. And this is the church that we must become. There's a reason why the Lord has led us into studying this. And it wasn't just so that we could have knowledge up here about what he says in the Sermon on the Mount and the history and the things like that. That's all great. But what the Lord is doing is he is using what we've studied to transform us into his likeness. To transform us into real Christians or little Christ followers of Jesus. And that's the church that we have to become. We cannot let the power of something like Christ's Sermon on the Mount bounce off us. Take a few things here, a few things there. We've got to become fully who he wants us to be. All Christ followers all over the earth are called to this same standard. Every one of them to the same narrow road, to the same road that leads to life. And we do, when we do this, when we live like this, we have a love that is so passionate and so strong and so visible that it cannot be hidden and people can't hide from it. Cannot be denied by those who the Holy Spirit is drawing to himself. He will use us and our right side up, narrow path, hunger and thirst for righteousness living to draw those people that he loves, that are eternal, that are made in his image and likeness, that he's passionate about loving, will draw them to us. And we will get the opportunity and the honor and the blessing to be used of God as his body to see them enter the kingdom, get baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and be discipled to do all the things that he's commanded. There is nothing like that blessing. That's a blessing worth living and dying for. And that's who we are as the church. But there are many in the world who don't know God. And those are seeing the followers of Christ. And what many of them are seeing in the followers of Christ is not the kingdom life that we've just been talking about for the last 10 minutes. That's not what they're seeing it's not what they're seeing from the, from the church. I'm just talking about Christ church, the whole thing, not Acts church specifically, just the church. When unbelievers from the outside are looking into the church, wondering, is there something real there? They are not often seeing the life that I just described. They see people who hate their enemies, which is no different than how they're acting. So why should they be drawn to that? Read your Twitter feed. Some of you are like Twitter. I don't know what that is. Yeah, it's an internet thing. If you go on Twitter and you look, and I'm talking specifically, just look at the people who are naming Christ, who are saying, I'm a Christian, and look at the way that they react when someone disagrees with them on politics or on some social issue or whatever. Are they always or generally even showing the love of Christ? Or are they getting their, their opinion in? Maybe not always in the nicest way. Are we showing love for our enemies as a church? Are they seeing people who are naming Christ being poor in spirit and mourning over their sin? Or they see people who are puffed up and prideful, boasting and judgmental. You might ask them what they're seeing when they look at the church. They see people who are named the name of Christ literally fighting with one another. Christians fighting with other Christians over minor theological issues that have nothing to do with the power of the gospel and people coming into the kingdom, but rather are little things about what Paul might have meant in this little spot. And they'll fight viciously over those things in front of unbelievers. This is what people are seeing in the church. That's not our calling and mission. You know who your brothers and sisters are? You know who they are? Your brothers and sisters? You know who the people are that you will spend eternity getting to know and loving more than you love anybody right now? People that you will build a passionate love for over eternity? You know who they are? They're the people sitting in the pews and the chairs this morning at crossroads and Kessid Church, and Vancouver Church down the street, New Heights, Summit View, Lighthouse Church, and a hundred other churches just in this county. These are the people you're going to spend eternity with. They're your brothers and sisters. All over the Northwest, all over Portland, all across the earth. That's who your brothers and sisters are. People in China who have coronavirus, there are believers. The church in China is blowing up. There are believers all over the place in China who love Jesus. Mexico, Honduras, the Philippines, Russia, and every other country all over the earth, these are your brothers and sisters. They may worship a little differently than you. Most of them do. They may speak a different language than you. They may look a little different than you. They may think politically a little different than you. In fact, there are people that a lot of us, truth be told, might be a little uncomfortable around because they're so culturally different than us. There are people who might be in a migrant caravan moving their way towards the southern border of the United States. Or they might be in a soup kitchen down the road. They're people who claim the name of Jesus Christ. There are brothers and there are sisters, and we ought to be very careful about how we speak about them and about how we speak to them. We need to have our eyes open to the kingdom. We have a lot of fractures. The Protestant Church is, by its nature, a protest, and it was a protest against the Catholic Church at the time. And then what happened is there's a million more Protestant reformations against every other Protestant church. And now there are thousands of people who are divided, sometimes over the smallest details of theology. And they're like, okay, we're starting a new church over here. We don't like those guys. What does that look like to the world? They can't even get it right. I've had this said to me, okay, which one of the 30,000 denominations is the one that's right? Right? Unbelievers don't have any patience for that. And our job is to be fishers of men and women, to go to the unbeliever to draw them towards Christ. But we don't. This is the truth. The stats show it, especially in the Western church. We aren't reaching them. The global church, the whole of the church at large, and especially the Western church, we haven't been careful about the way that we act. We've been used to being in a position of relative power, meaning that we had cultural power. People generally were Christians. People generally believed in Jesus or believed in God or kind of believed in the Bible and whatever. And so we were able to have all these denominations and be separated and do all these kinds of things because people generally were buying in. But that has ended. That is over. That has long been over. And we just haven't seen it. And we thought we could keep acting the way we were acting, which we never should have been acting, but it wasn't hurting us as badly. And now that that's long over, we've got the nuns. I don't mean the Catholic ladies in the thing. I mean, people who have no religious affiliation. And that number is going like this. Boom, 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 boom. It's just going up. People are leaving the church, especially young people in droves, because they're sick of it, man. They're tired of the way that we act. And I'm I'm as bad of an offender as anybody. I've had all of these issues. Why would people look into the church And see people acting basically just the same as they act outside the church. The statistics for addiction and pornography use and drunkenness and gossip and backbiting within the church. Guess what it looks like? The world. It's like anybody outside the church. We've gotten lazy about being hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And our witness is affected by it. Why would they interpret the way we're acting? I don't, I'm not specifically talking to you specifically, okay? I'm talking to the church. We are part of the church. Why would they interpret the way that we're acting as love? Why would they be drawn towards it? And then there's this so-called leaders in Christ's church in different places who treat the scripture like it has delete and copy and paste functions. I don't like that. That must have been a cultural thing. Let's take that out and we'll just put in whatever modern belief we want to. They treat the scripture with disdain. They tell people what they want to hear so they can be popular among the world. They call evil good. They call good evil and they refuse to speak truth to power. They refuse to speak truth to culture. They don't want to confront and all of this in front of a world that is full of dying people, spiritually dead, being conformed to the world day by day, looking for an answer and not finding it when they look at us. These are people that Jesus loved so much that he died for them, just like he did for you and me. If we're going to be his church and see his great commission move forward, through us, we're going to have to start living right side up. There is no other way. We will answer. We will answer if we don't. We're going to have to love each other with a passionate holy, righteous love that attracts the hearts of those who the Holy Spirit is drawing to the Father. I want them to look at the church. I'm talking about the whole church, the Western church, as something that's coming together where the love is growing, growing hot, not growing cold. Of course, we can only start right here, right? Where we're called. So this has to be us listen to this. John 17, 20 through 23. This is Jesus praying. He says, I do not pray for these alone. He's talking about his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? It's us. He's praying for us right here. Jesus is on earth. He's praying. He's praying for us. And this is what he prays, that they all may be one, I've loved them as you have loved me. The world will know that Jesus was sent, that Jesus is God, that Jesus died and rose for people's sins if we love one another. That's what it says that if we are one and we love one another, it is a direct witness to the world that God sent Jesus Christ. That's the witness. Look, I like a lot of things. I like apologetics, which is where I talk about why we believe Scripture, and I talk about the problem of evil, and I talk about why we should believe that God exists, and And that's all great. That helps people with certain objections, but there is nothing more powerful than the oneness and unity of Christ's church living, narrow road, right-side-up life, loving one another. No other thing is more powerful to draw those people who God loves to himself. Nothing. It is a direct witness. Why? Because there is nothing in the world and in culture that looks like the love of God other than what can exist in the church. They will not find it. They might love their own kids. Like the people online, I'm not going to die for anybody. Or maybe I die for my best friend because he's really nice to me. Or maybe I die for my mom because she took care of me. That's the world's thing. The church's thing is and has always been, we will pour ourselves out for the world because Jesus loves them and because we're eternal. When people were sick in the Roman world in the first century, and their friends and their family and all the rest of them would run out of the town. Just imagine coronavirus right now in China, okay? Just imagine that happening in a town. Everybody left. You know who was pouring in? The Christians. The believers. They were pouring in because their love was vastly different. It was right side up. And they came and they cared for these idol worshiping, rebellious unbelievers because Jesus loved them. And many of them got the illness and died. It wasn't like they were all protected from the illness. The fallen world was still the fallen world, but the witness that they had spread because their love was a testimony and a witness that God had sent Jesus Christ. And that's who we have to be. Now, we have to love one another. Okay? We have to. And you cannot love one another and be a gossip or a drunk, or a porn addict, or a thief, or a liar, or an adulterer, or even a jerk. If you love one another. If we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves, look, we're just not going to sin. We're going to be something that the people in the world are going to look to. If we ask ourselves first... When we have something we've got to do, is what I'm doing loving God? Is what I'm doing loving my neighbor? If you can do that, you're going to be living a narrow road life, a right side up life. That's just the way that it is. Now, I want to tell you why I'm talking about all this and why this is so very important right now, right now, today, in the world. Because here's the deal people are breaking. People are breaking. Let me explain what I mean. I was listening to a podcast this week. It's called This Cultural Moment. It was turned on to it by a pastor that I had when I was in Tennessee, a good friend of mine. Um, And it's actually a guy in Portland. Uh, It's a collaboration of John Mark Comer, who's at Bridgetown Church in Portland, and Mark Sayers of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. And these guys, they're discussing secularism. Secularism in the Western world. Particularly in cities like Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, and London, and Melbourne, and San Francisco, and Los Angeles, and New York City. Which, by the way, one of those is our city. We are in the Portland metro area. We are living in the heart of Western secularism. That's the worldview that predominates. That's the worldview that is not only infecting our young people in a major way, but is affecting people at every age, and even affecting people in the church. That is the worldview. What's interesting about secularism is how it's affecting people and how people who have started to follow it are now reacting to it. Let me break down the secular worldview as quickly as I can because we're going to run out of time. Worldviews generally follow a structure, okay? They follow a structure, and the the structure is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You probably recognize that because we've talked about it before, and it's certainly the Christian worldview. In the Christian worldview, creation is creation, right? God creates. He creates the, the earth. He creates man and woman, and he says it's very good. And they're in Eden, and it's very good, and God is with them, and they're one, and it's a good thing. And then what happens? We sin, and there's a fall. Now, for the secular worldview, they have a similar thing, except instead of the normal creation story that we have, they have this idea that when they were born, when they were first there, you know, babies, whatever, that they were innocent and perfect, that everything was right with the world. And for them, sin or the fall was what people did to them. Trauma, divorce, divorce the expectations of their teachers or their peers, what you'd call externally placed identities by the world on them. Sin for them is things like commitment, like doing anything that they don't want to do, like doing anything that doesn't cause pleasure. That's the fall to them. That's people having oppressed and taken their perfect self and jacked it all up. Their inner child is now all oppressed. That's the fault of them. Now to us, redemption comes in Jesus Christ when he dies and rises again, defeating sin and death and hell and giving us the opportunity to serve him and follow him. But for them, redemption is something different. It's finding their inner child. It's becoming centered. It's getting away from all the things that they consider sin, like obligations, expectations, and moving into a place where they can just be them and be with themselves. That's why you will hear people say things like, I left my wife and got together with this lady because I needed to find myself. As though that was a redemptive act. Their adultery is redemptive. They went and found themselves. Or you might hear people say, I worked so hard all week, I just need to go camping this weekend and get back to me. Get back to being centered. That is redemption. And restoration for us is when God makes all things new. New heaven, new earth, new body, spiritual body, that whole thing. For them, restoration is when they fully find themselves. They become complete themselves. They create an identity for themselves that everybody loves. That's really their inner self. And they experience happiness all the time, which they define as pleasure, which is actually a very different thing than happiness. That's restoration. This is the secular worldview, okay? That's a very quick thing. On You can listen to that podcast if you want to hear them kind of walk through it. It is the quintessential Psalm 2 worldview. Let me read Psalm 2 for you, okay? First five verses. It says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is Christ, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. These, the the secular worldview says tradition Scripture, the Bible, God, all these things, they're shackles, they're chains. I need to break them and be free and totally autonomous and do whatever I want. And the response of God to that kind of a mindset is laughter because it is absurd to think that you can break the bonds of reality and morality. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. While these people are out there, Trying to break all these chains of responsibility, of submission, of anything difficult, of commitment, of morality. They're finding out that they can't. They're finding out that the Lord laughs at those who think that they can. That there is no salvation in doing whatever you want. Because the truth is, you're not perfect and going back to some perfection. That there are sinners who are broken and need a savior. And there is no joy, nor happiness, nor pleasure to be found in finding your inner child. They're finding this out. They flock to this secular worldview, and now they're realizing the lie that's at the base base of it all. It's a satanic lie. He's always a liar. There's no joy. There's no pleasure. There's no happiness in living completely for themselves. There's not some perfect version of themselves that they can find by rejecting authority and commitment and difficulty. And so where are they? They're sitting there going, my worldview is bankrupt. And they are ripe. They are ripe for the only truth that there really is in this world and on this earth. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're ripe for it. In our area... In the Northwest, people are beginning to understand that politicians won't save them. Do you know why political discourse has gotten how it is? Just crazy, right? Any of you that have been around for more than a few decades, remember when it was like, I don't say who I vote for, you don't say who you vote for, we all just kind of do our thing and whatever. Most politicians were relatively moderate, although both sides would still say, oh, this one's so liberal and this one's so. If you looked at what Republicans or Democrats did 30 years ago, they would all look very similar. Now, it's like, ah, right? On both sides. Why do you think that is? Because the only saviors that people have when they don't have Christ are their leaders, You're going to protect me and make me safe and make the economy right and do whatever and so on and so forth. And if you're worried and you think that's the person that's going to do it, well, you're going to freak out when your person doesn't make it and yay when your person does. And there's this big battle. Why is that? That's secularism coming into its own. That's why you see it. They need it. They need saviors. There's only one savior, people, regardless of what your Facebook feed says. There's one Savior, Jesus Christ. That's it. And they're realizing that. They're realizing that more weed will not save them. They've legalized it. Smoke it up, baby. It ain't saving you. It ain't saving you. More sexual depravity won't save them. This whole creating identities thing, it's all connected to what you see. And I'm not going to get into transgenderism and pronouns and all this, but it's all connected to secularism. It's all connected to, I want to create an identity that I get to make. And they're recognizing it doesn't work. And the statistics are coming out that shows it doesn't work. Even the good things that they care about and fight for won't save them. More social awareness won't save them. More recycling won't save them. None of these things are the thing that they're seeking for. Now is the time. Now is the time for the church to stand tall and tell them the most loving thing that we can. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus will save them. They're broken, and we're Christ's church. They're broken. Our whole job, our whole mission is to go out and seek after the broken, as Christ did. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel in power and in truth. And for the person who's recognizing the brokenness of the worldview that they've bought into and the lies, there's nothing twice so powerful and amazing as the truth, but we have to be the people of God to bring the truth. We can't look just like them or they're going to be like, I don't believe you. You look like me. Why would I think that trading in this one for the one that doesn't seem to be doing anything for you would be any better? We got to be Christ's church. This is a special time to be Christ's church, to be a witness to his resurrection power in our lives. This is a special time. I'm telling you, the end has come for secularism. And they will seek, they will seek an answer. We're either going to be ready for it or we're not. According to the American Psychological Association, suicide has increased 33% since 1999. 99 to 2017, 33%. James Robinson is here today. You can look at him in the back there. He deals with us all the time, with our soldiers. Suicide is a major, major, major problem in the Western world and in our country. It's now the second leading cause of death from 10 years old to 34, suicide. People are literally dying in despair when they recognize that the secular worldview won't save them. They're literally taking their lives. The statistics from 2008 to 2017 from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention are here on the screen, okay? Okay. There it is, 2008, 2017, you can see which direction that goes. It goes up and up and up. It was already bad, okay? I'm not even going back to 1999, which continues to go down that way. It's now that high, okay? Now, here's the thing. According to Jeremiah Johnston in his book, Unimaginable, What Our World Would Be Like Without Christianity, he calls this an epidemic. He's not wrong. Let's look a little closer to home. Here's what the statistics for Washington state look like compared to the national average. We're higher. Let's add Oregon. Where is the secular worldview dominant? Washington and Oregon. Now we're in the Northwest district of the Wesleyan church. I'm going to have you put the rest of the states of that district up. This is where we are. This is what happens when you find out that secularism is a lie and there's nobody there to love you and be in relationship with you and be in community with you and draw you into the love of Christ because we're too worried, all messed up with our own stuff. And we're not serious enough about it. And we're not understanding it enough. This is what happens. All right, let's get rid of this. Put something else up there. I don't want to see that. People are scared, people are broken. People are dying. That's the fact. You know how many people go to the average church? About 186. Average church. Median is about 75. There's half the churches in the country are less than 75, half or more. But because of a lot of the mega churches, average is 186. So I took that number times the 159 churches, give or take, that are in Clark County. And it gave us about 30,000 people will be in church this morning. In this county. I'm just talking about this county. I'm not going to Portland or anywhere else. About 30,000 people. The estimated size of the county in 2018 was 481,857. How many people are needing Christ? How many people are struggling with a secular worldview around you and in your neighborhood? Just in Clark County, 450,000. Do we have a job to do? We have a job to do. We got to live right side up. And we got to be praying passionately for these people. We need to be able to be willing to live and to die for them. It needs to be our life. We can't just come here and enjoy being together. That's awesome. But we have to be on mission. There are 450,000 people in this county. I'm not even talking about Portland or the Northwest or the world. I showed you what the statistics look like just in the rest of our district. People are dying. We have the answer. The only answer you just got to ask yourself who you're going to be because you know what else people won't be drawn to the church unless they know that you're willing to live and die for it. That's what makes a worldview worthwhile and real and true. Let's ask God to transform us. Let's pray passionately, passionately for him to move, for him to move in this place in this county, in the Northwest, in the world. And let's let it start right here. Let's let it start right here. Thanks for listening to that Axe Church sermon. We hope God spoke to you through it. We would like to invite you to join us in person on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. for our Sunday service. If you enjoyed this sermon, have questions for us, or simply want to connect with Axe Church more, find us on Facebook under Axe Church Northwest. Send us an email or message or leave us a rating or recommendation. We appreciate all of you and hope to hear from you.